I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. It's a rainy day here in Brooklyn, and I'm excited to share a conversation I had with the artist, choreographer, and dancer, Madeline Hollander. Madeline has a really unique way of looking at the world. When she's putting together her performances, she mentions to me that she's almost never inventing new movements. Instead, she's always pulling from what she observes in the world. She has this amazing ability to isolate the ways we move our bodies in very specific contexts, and she uses these movements as the building blocks for a sequence. For instance, she talks about the specific way our body twitches when we're playing a pinball machine, or the way you've learned to interact with a touchscreen, or even something like performing the Heimlich maneuver. Beyond that, she's also looking at the way our movements manifest themselves into larger systems. She talks about traffic patterns in New York, or the movement of tugboats along the Hudson River. These things have their own ebbs and flows that she samples in her work. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Madeline's practice is how diverse it is. You can find her staging performances with LA Dance Project, or showing an installation of program car taillights at Bordolami Gallery, or even serving as the movement director on Jordan Peele's latest film, Us. I think her way of understanding human movement is something that really crosses the traditional boundaries within the art world. She has such a sensitive eye for our body language, and I I think that, coupled with her background in traditional ballet, uh, really makes her a unique voice. So here I am talking with Madeline Hollander. In the same way that you would put together your materials before building a sculpture or collecting your materials before making a painting, when I'm doing research, it usually involves making a lot of diagrams and interpreting information, you know, via movement and kind of making a list of different types of movements and gestures and postures that I see attributed to whatever I'm working on. This is very, or right now I'm not really going specific, but building a movement language is kind of how I begin before piecing together in any choreography. So the actual process of making a choreography or a work is more aligned with the process of collage or almost like Frankensteining mm. something together. So yeah. taking movements from many different scales and sources. So for example, for the piece New Max that was all about or was looking at um, how choreography can alter the temperature in a gallery. So the dancers were the choreography was designed to heat up the gallery. I set up a network with the lights in the gallery, the air conditioner units, and um, these temperature sensors. So as the dancers would begin this really rigorous movement, the temperature of the gallery would slowly rise. And it started at 65 degrees, which is the kind of standard that most art institutions set their thermostat as like an archival standard for preserving mm-hmm. works of art. When it hit 70 degrees, the lights, which had slowly gotten brighter as the temperature goes up, would go off. The ACs would all turn on and the dancers would rest and they would just wait on the floor until and drink water and you know hang out until the temperature went back down to 66 degrees, one degree higher than where they started. And then when it hit 66 degrees, the ACs would uh, shut off. The lights would turn back on, but on dim. And then the dancers would get up and continue the choreography at exactly the point that they had left off, almost as if it was a freeze dance. And then they would do this process again, and they would dance really hard and do these sequences. And when it hit 71 degrees, you know, this would repeat and so on. So it kept on getting hotter and hotter. Mm-hmm. And so for that piece, just to bring this research process into some context, I was looking for movement inspiration from like what happened, looking at molecules 
undergoing boiling points or microwave or fusion. And mm-hmm. uh, I was also looking at tropical storm patterns on a macro scale and like what, how do storms move? And then on the human scale, I was looking at all the different ways people heat up. So I typed in, you know, one minute core warm up into YouTube and you get these really funny videos of people doing like extreme burpees or like, you know, Pilates moves and then different ways that you prevent frostbite. So types of like tapping your fingers and your toes and little movements that have to do with warming up specific parts of your body or different types of warm ups for different sports. So like, what is the warm up for baseball? What is the warm up for basketball, for boxing and kind of pulled those very specific movement sequences specific to that sport or that discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm all of a sudden has hundreds of different movement sequences, whether or not they're, you know, two seconds long or 20 seconds long and create these movement sequences that are literally Frankensteining and building, you know, mixing all of these scales and, and sources together. And then it gets translated on the, you know, scale of the human body as a composition. So the four dancers are interpreting a tropical storm pattern at the same time as they're doing like a warm up boxing routine at the same time that they're mm-hmm. doing this funny little like heel butt kicks that's for your core warm up. And so the combination of all of those created this really, really vigorous, rigorous warm up routine um, mm-hmm. that was pretty, you know, it's pulling from everyday movements and I'm not creating any of the individual moves myself, but the way that they get put together becomes the work. Yeah. You're kind of, you're kind of sampling and decontextualizing these like almost like micro like gestures, like a, like a a micro gesture, but then blowing them up so that, you know, a micro gesture that usually you do with a finger or your hand would then, you know, manifest across the whole body. That process, that, that idea of, you know, sampling these, these movements, um, that seems like a very, very specific way to go about working. I mean, wh- so where did, what was your first kind of interaction with, you know, working that way? I think I've always worked that way because I, I definitely approach a lot of these projects as uh, more of an anthropologist or an ethnography, mm. like building the ethnography as opposed to a choreographer, quote unquote, where yeah. you're kind of pulling, making moves out of nowhere. Not that that's what choreographers do, but I don't really ever make up new movements. And for me, that was about observing and really, you know, when you're growing up training as a ballet dancer, you learn by watching everyone. So it's not just how they're dancing, but it's how they stand. It's how they sit down. It's how they put on and off their shoes, how they fix their hair. And so you get to know everyone really intimately based off of their signature moves. You know, when they're listening, they do something with their head or when they're nervous, you can you just learn really quickly all the um, the body language. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at Columbia, I was studying the, I was doing cultural anthropology, but I was really interested in looking at the evolution of our corporeal vocabularies and how they've evolved um, due to the influx of new technology. So looking at all these new gestures and modes of interact, like physical modes of interacting with technology that didn't exist before that technology existed. So like the iPhone, Mm -hmm. um, different scales of computers, the mouse from the touchscreen, or like the ways that people would say, call me 20 years ago versus 10 years, years ago versus five years ago. Yeah. And, you know, using your thumbs as opposed to using your fingers. And, um, so it's just started collecting, 
all of the gestures that I would see that were new. And then also organizing the gestures and movements that I would see that were outmoded because that technology or interface that they were referencing at that certain point, you know, is no longer being used or is, you know, from another era. Yeah. So I started doing this thing called gesture archive, um, where I would invite friends and literally anybody who wanted to come do this to my studio for this like full portrait video. It wasn't an interview. It was more of a conversation. Um, but I had a camera that was capturing their body and we'd engage in a conversation and it could either be 10 minutes or it could be four hours. It really was, you know, depended on the person and what kind of mood they're in and how comfortable they were. And um, for me, it was about how to get them into how to make them feel really comfortable so that we could just engage in a real conversation as opposed to them performing for a camera. And so Mm -hmm. that sometimes took, sometimes that was instantaneous and sometimes that took many, many hours. But at the end of each of these sessions, I would go through the footage and just pull all of the clips, all the little movements and gestures that I thought were specific to that person. So for example, like if you were to play a game of charades where you were just picking people, like you had to imitate people, like what that movement would be if you were to do someone, if you had to kind of describe someone in one move. Yeah. Um, so I was doing, I was collecting those, but also organizing all the gestures into um, things that were more specific to that time, you know, like what types of the ways that people were communicating with their body. And so this gesture archive became this like online database that kept growing. It's still growing. I'm not as actively feeding it anymore, but it became almost like a library that I would look to whenever making a new piece. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would, you know, pull up 10 different friends movement videos and just have them play. And it'd be this kind of like jump cut of all these different moves that, you know, were completely out of context and abstracted at this point um, in the sense that, you know, there was no sound. So Mm -hmm. they're just gesturing and moving and pull movements that I thought were interesting or relevant to whatever the piece was I was working on on at the time from those videos and bring that into rehearsal. So it was like a little, um, yeah, it's a database and I still use it. So I feel like that's where that process started was about um, really looking to pedestrian movement and everyday maneuvers, whether or not that's, you know, people backing out of driveways or how people greet you at a door or the way that someone orders a coffee or how someone weaves through traffic on a sidewalk when they're on the phone and in their own world. And all of those things uh, just become different little, their little choreographies. That's such a, almost like such an intimate way to look at the world. I also feel like it, it probably has a lot to do with kind of, you know, even subcultures and the way certain groups of people move versus the way other groups of people move, you know, that. I think there's a lot to get into there. Yeah. And the way that people mimic each other and mm-hmm. the way that people grow more similar to, yeah, I think that um, your body is very affected by your surroundings, whether or not that's people, the furniture, the interface, the technology, the pace of things, and that, you know, you are coming up with your own moves and your own expressive ways of, of navigating life, but you're also being choreographed by all these other forces. Um, whether or not they're invisible or like literally a chair. How do dancers like? When, I, you know, I know you have this kind of core group in in New York, but when you go into a rehearsal and you're working with dancers and you kind of start pitching these ideas, you know, the and and saying, "Oh, this movement is coming from this place. This movement's coming from this place." How do they respond to that? Is that a very new way of working for them? I'm usually not going into detail about where the movements come from. I'm usually just kind of spilling out a 
huge handful of different movements that mm-hmm. I think I want to be working with for that piece. And we all work together to figure out how to glue them together. Mm. And so, so much of our rehearsal process is transitions and choreographing the transitions between like, I know I want this one weird move that's on your back and then this weird move that's just a hand movement that's very upright. And so figuring out how you get from one to the next becomes a really collaborative process that we end up, you know, through that process, especially if we get stuck going back to the source and being like, where did this movement come from? Where did I see it? Why is, why do I want them in that order? Like, can't we cut this up and put it later? Um, but in a way, the whole process almost feels like a jigsaw puzzle. And so it's like, here are all these random pieces that definitely don't fit together and have never fit together before. And let's figure out how to make like a poem out of them so that things rhyme and things have smooth edges where we want them and rough ones where we want them. And um, what's been fun about working with the same group of dancers is how quick we're able to do that because they know the um, I don't know they're very accustomed to the aesthetic and the flow of this process so yeah it's almost like we're all speaking we're not really speaking that much we have kind of our own uh, movement language the other thing that kind of comes to my mind like you're talking about this performance new max uh that I think was at the artist institute um yeah is the way that technology plays into that and that you've not only choreographed a sequence of movements, but you've also kind of choreographed a kind of loop where, you know, the the lights and the temperature and these vents are sort of all coordinated and programmed to respond to a certain set of, of variables. How did you become interested in, in that kind of technology element? I think I have never, it's not really specific to the technology or being interested in technology. It's specific to my interest in networks and systems. So. Yeah. When I think about a system or a network, that's for me a, another as a type of synchronicity of movement and, and information. So mm-hmm. when you have lights choreographed with air conditioner units, choreographed with temperature sensors, with the dancers, then all of a sudden you have this full cast of performers that some are very obvious, the dancers, but the air conditioners are you know, they were also listed in the cast of performers in the program or in the um, in the press release because they're working equally as hard to mm-hmm. bring down the temperature mm-hmm. and undo all the energy that the performers had just done. You know, they're not moving per se, but they're not moving um, externally, but internally they have all these worrying fans. And I, I've always kind of considered anything that moves a performer. So, you know, again, it goes back to traffic or the way that air traffic control towers as being a type of choreography system. So I think that I've worked with a lot of technology just because if you're not working with a human, it usually involves tech to have something that's inanimate, animate. And I'm also really interested in the relationship of the human body and tech, but it's really, that's pretty equal with the human body in relationship to architecture or entrances and exits. It's really not specific to what is new. The thing that comes to my mind, especially because you've mentioned traffic a few times, is your installation Heads Tails at Bartolami Gallery. You installed all these taillights on the walls of the gallery, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're they're in sync with the flow of traffic on the street outside the gallery. Is that is that correct? Almost. Um, <laughs> So there's a, a selection, there's hundreds of headlights and taillights um, on both walls, and they are actually synced with 
the intersection at Ro- Walker and Broadway, mm-hmm. which is the closest intersection to the gallery. So they are reflecting the traffic outside because the cars are obviously, you know, stopping and going and being choreographed by that intersection and those lights. So what happens is when the light at the intersection goes from yellow to red, all the cars in front of the gallery start to slow down and stop at that light. Mm. And so as that's happening, you see that all the taillights in the gallery are incrementally kind of going on. So it goes from every single taillight being off to going on and that matches the taillights that are actually on the cars directly in front of the gallery. So this was something that was really obvious at night because there were windows and you could see standing outside that the entire gallery illuminated kind of red purple Mm -hmm. um, as the cars were illuminating the street red and purple from their taillights and less obvious during the day when it would kind of be more about these patterns and all of the taillights in the gallery were they're synced with the light, but they were also programmed to reflect different behaviors and personalities of New York City drivers. So I made a list of, I think it was 36 different types of personalities. So someone who's in a rush, someone who's a tailgater, someone who's on their phone, someone who's extremely old, someone who can't see over the steering wheel, someone who's listening to music too loud and kind of tapping their foot on the brake, um, someone who's inching, someone who's lost. So kind of made this list and based off that list I I made a score for their type of braking behavior. So if you imagine, you know, when you look at when you're driving and someone is puts on their brakes in front of you, you can learn a lot about what's happening, whether or not it's their personality or what circumstance they're in, you know, if they put on their brake way too early or they don't do it till the very last second because they're on their phone, if they're if they a type of person that runs a yellow light or doesn't, playing it safe or being kind of more bold. Um, And so all of those patterns would reflect on different lights in the gallery, the different taillights. So you'd see a kind of flickering. But if you kind of, if you paid attention, you would see that they did really um, sync up with different types of ways people break when they approach an intersection, which for me is a movement pattern. So again, it goes back to almost signature moves. So how someone approaches an intersection is, you know, Assume is makes a parallel to how someone would greet someone or like the specific way someone has posture or a gesture or a stance it's like a kind of movement of the body that's sort of mediated through a system of the car in this case completely and this i mean the system isn't the car that's the car is the body Mm. an extension of the body and the system is this really intricate complex network of the coordination of all the traffic lights so first off it's pretty amazing that this many humans and you know that much volume and like these huge machines are all following the instructions of changing of a light Mm -hmm. from red to green to yellow yeah um but then the second part that's really incredible is how all of those intersections in in you know in manhattan at least are um are one big network. So in a way, it's not like the choreography and the timing for one intersection is, sorry, there's a dog. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Is its own unique pattern. It's one little node of this very complex network that is choreographed by the Department of Transportation based off of the time of day, um, the weather, the bus schedules, whether or not that intersection's in a school zone, whether it's close to a bridge, if it's a weekend or a weekday, I mean, there's hundreds of factors. So it's 
it's being updated live based off of statistics from previous years and you know what's happening on that day so it's a very dynamic choreography and so that was what i was trying to capture with the lights and whether or not that came across or it was something that you just experienced as more of a a light piece that was you know something you didn't even know was connected to the intersection didn't really matter to me my experience of 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 seeing that show was you know i kind of went in i i didn't i didn't want to read anything or look at anything and i and i kind of went in there and and just sort of responded to everything and then i went back out and i read the little press release and then i walked back in <laughs> and then and then i was trying to sort of walk you know in my mind walk through like okay this person's breaking at this time this person's breaking at that time so it did i did it definitely shifted that my understanding of that show after after thinking about it in relation to a system yeah and then i hope at least for me i was staring at lights for so long that you know going out onto the street after install and working on this i now look at tail lights completely differently <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah, you yeah. start paying paying attention to those breaking patterns no you do cuz um, cuz i i love what you say about how you can almost tell something about someone i mean my experience of that is, uh, you know, I live in Park Slope, so twice a week I have to go downstairs and get in the car and go move it and try and find a new parking space. Right. And there's a very, very specific kind of taillight mediated interaction with someone when you're driving behind someone that's looking for a parking uh-huh. space, you know, and there's this yeah. kind of rhythmic, like, it's a little slow, it's a little, you know, you kind of speed and slow and speed, you know, there's, that's a very specific Completely. feeling. I don't know why I didn't put looking for a parking spot as one of the personalities. <laughs> no, that's a good one. It's Next a, time. That's a very yeah. specific behavior. I mean, I feel like this it piece is. could get a lot of, um, perhaps LA is like going to be very, very receptive to this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's probably influenced by how many hours I've spent in traffic in LA growing yeah. up. Um, yeah. And just that visual, which is really stunning, actually, when you're on a freeway in complete gridlock at night and you have like a red river on one side and a white river on the other side and how, you know, frustrating, but also kind of spectacular that can be. Yeah. Um, what also happened with this piece was I was able to really collaborate and work with people from the Department of Transportation to understand how to even begin to get the data Mm -hmm. from the intersection. But in doing that, I learned so much about the history of New York City's traffic, just traffic signals in general and how they began with human, you know, humans and these almost like lifeguard tower boxes that were up and down Fifth Avenue. And Mm. they would, you know, have a hand gesture that would mean stop, slow down and um, go. And then when that was replaced by the first lighting system, white was go and green was stop. And so, you know, these colors and these rules and these codes have all evolved like anything else. And then when they developed this first electrical signal, which is closest to what we have now, um, they held a competition and this artist who won, Joseph Friedlander, designed this, it's a gold leaf, but it's a bronze sculpture of Mercury, the god of, you know, the messenger and the god of traffic and commerce and um, kind of <laughs> communication in a way. So there were statues, bronze statues on every single tower. And these were, you know, these very ornate, there were compasses engraved on the boxes. And the second that they went all, they went up, they started to get stolen because they mm. were these beautiful artworks. Yeah. And so they had to take them all down and they somehow got lost. And the Department of Transportation has no idea where there were 107 of them, and they can only find, I think, seven of that number. 
Wow. Um, and so I located two of them that were at the City Museum of New York. And then there was one in a gallery that really generously offered to loan the statue for the duration of the show. So right where you saw the um, press release, there's also an incredible text by Alex Benenson, who really went into the history of New York and the grid and how it relates back to the Hudson, actually, kind of first and foremost. And then there's one of the Mercury sculptures um, that was, you know, one of the originals that was adorning a traffic signal up and down Fifth Avenue. So um, there are a lot of little hidden components to that show that I hope get discovered or continue to be discovered (laughs) despite it being down. Yeah, now I feel a little silly for not having paid more attention to that to that object there. Now all I want to do is know what it looks like. Well, I will send you a picture. Yeah, it's the other thing incredible. you mentioned uh you mentioned the Hudson for a second and I I did want to talk about your piece at the Whitney Biennial. Can you pronounce this for me cuz I'm 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 worried I'm going to mispronounce yeah, it. Yeah, Ouroboros. So or- Ouroboros G's. See, I'm happy you said it cuz I think I would have said like the outer boroughs, you know? What I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, that works. <laughs> or- Ouroboros G's. So you did this uh this work and this performance for the closing of the Whitney Biennial. I mean, do you want to sort of describe the the system that was at place or the or what you were drawing on for this? Yeah, so after being invited to participate in the Biennial um, and doing a lot of site visits, I really couldn't stop thinking about the Hudson and how huge of an influence that giant body of water is on the site and found myself looking out of the windows onto the Hudson kind of more than in the gallery spaces themselves. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, I went down this huge research hole about tugboats, which I could do in another session, (laughs) but, um, in learning about the architecture of the building and the site and all these kind of incredible things that Renzo Piano and these engineers manifested or had to do after Sandy because the building was under construction when Sandy happened and it kind of turned the whole site into a giant bathtub and they had to reconfigure. I mean, everything had to kind of get redesigned so that in the case of another superstorm, the building would be safe and protected and they wouldn't lose artwork. And so all of these changes happened. And one of them was developing this barrier system wall, which is a lock and log system that goes all the way around the building. And it's these steel and aluminum kind of like Lincoln logs that click together and it's vapor tight. So water does not pass through. This is, a, I mean, I could go into really crazy technical detail about <laughs> all of it because it's really fascinating. And the engineers, Walls and Krenzer, and I mean, everyone involved has it's really it's an incredible story but in short i was learning more about the system and how the museum has to do regular drills of you know learning how to put up this lock and log system or the barrier system in the case of superstorms and when that happens it happens at like four in the morning or obviously like not museum hours and no one's seen this and so i looked at these kind of images of how it gets erected and the protocol for um, deploying the system and taking it down. And I assumed that there was some sort of instructions or like a manual or like, mm-hmm. you know, of how to do it. And there wasn't. So really it's just been passed down by word of mouth, by the head operation staff to whoever happens to be working yeah. at that time. My original idea was to come up with, to work, you know, collaboratively with the facilities and operations team to come up with a choreography that would become the, standard protocol or choreography for 
deploying the system when they have a drill, which is supposed to be once a year. And so the piece, I mean, this is, I'm leaping over a lot of other steps mm -hmm. in this, but the piece itself ended up being a collaboration between the art handling staff, the operations staff, and my dancers who all worked together to figure out all of our roles and practice how to actually put up this really physically intensive system. Yeah. Um, and we began on one end and we did a choreography that shows how all these little capsules on the sidewalk are maintained where you have to undo these little caps, pull out the screws, clean the screws, put it back in. And we did a series of those that turned into like a, wa a waltz almost. And then hmm. we deployed half of the wall. So kind of to demonstrate just how they fit together and how they go up and down, um, we did it as if it was a leapfrog. So it's hard to explain <laughs> over the phone, but it was like one segment would go up and then we'd use those same panels mm -hmm. um, or logs to put up the next segment. So it was kind of like we'd build one up and then use that to fill up the next one, yeah. use those materials to fill up the next one, almost like a slinky. Mm -hmm. um, and this was really challenging because we had, you know, there were, we had very few opportunities to actually work rehearse with the materials themselves because well it's um, huge right i mean it's, yeah, it's, it's quite it's a huge yeah, yeah. it's quite um, a feat it's a bit very durational and, this kind of this yeah kind of it was exercise. very durational and we honestly did not know how long it was going to take yeah. so um it worked out but mm -hmm. um we got faster as we went too because as you practice anything you become more you start to make the movements more efficient and you find ways to make things easier and that was also really interesting but the piece became this exposure, a way of showing this really significant and important aspect of the museum that I think that the museum should be really proud of mm -hmm. um, as something that needs to become more of an, a, a normalized ritual. You know, the superstorms are not coming every hundred years anymore. They're coming every four to five years. So yeah. for this to become something that is more in the public eye as like this is going to be a normal thing like you lock up and here you you open and you lock up you, there's different ways of maintaining the facade of the building and then there's different here's this you know protocol of practicing putting up and down the flood mitigation system and just acknowledging the fact that it is so close to the hudson and that it has been developed to withstand a superstorm which is really different from a lot of the other architectures along the hudson and I thought that that needed to be celebrated and kind of put into the public eye. Yeah. So we did that performance. But the one thing that I think a lot of people didn't see was that there was a piece up for the biennial the entire duration of the exhibition. So the piece was just at the very corner, the um, southwest corner. So like if you walk, if you're walking towards the Hudson in front of the Whitney, you get to that corner point. Yeah, right where and the bend in the stair is. Exactly, yeah. the bend in the stair. So that is the first place that water would touch the museum in the case of a storm or a flood. And so I asked to erect just the corner point those two panels to make a corner so it was almost like a, a funny bookend mm -hmm. yeah um or like a keystone in my mind it was like the keystone of the entire thing um so there was a 16 foot deal and aluminum very shiny very bold kind of brutalist looking mm -hmm. portion or segment these two segments of the flood mitigation wall up on that corner and it was you know, there was usually a guard there kind of guarding it as an artwork, but it was this funny in-between zone because it was at once part of the museum and part of the safety system. Yeah. 
Um, but on the other hand, it was completely abstracted and it was more of a, in a way, a billboard for this performance that was coming. So people would say like, what is this? And then you'd see on the glass that there was a little card that just, that said, you know, this is Ouroboros G, this performance is going to happen in the fall and said that this was these two segments, E and F of this very large and really beautiful system that is usually, you know, the public has never seen before. Is, is so they, that was up the whole time. Have they removed it from the, from the system? They is this officially it, yeah, your so, work? Yeah, <laughs> sadly. Yeah, I know. It was really interesting. It was nice to have my name on that. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, it was in, so part of the performance for Ouroboros cheese was we deploy it, but we also remove all the pieces and bring them back to their home in this warehouse next door. So mm-hmm. We, as we were erecting the piece, we were also deinstalling it. So at the end of the performance, those segments also via choreography were deinstalled. And then we reloaded all of the pieces onto these dollies and all of us rolled all the dollies with all the parts that we had just done the four hour performance with around the corner. And sometimes some of the people left and some of the people stayed and followed us. Mm. Cause for me, the end of the performance is when they actually got put back into their storage position and we pulled them into this huge door. And so we pushed all the materials in, we all went inside and then we all together pushed this giant door <laughs> that's extremely heavy, um, closed yeah. and then did the vapor type seal. And that was the end of the performance. Wow. The nose, I called that the nose cone, the piece that also disappeared <laughs> as part of the performance. Where does the, um, where's the name come from? Nose cone no, uh, or Ouroboros. I, I, so nose I suppose cone came both. From just, yeah. That became the working, like whenever I was trying to refer, like just talking about that corner piece, I yeah. just kept on thinking about those, those like very shiny, I think, I don't know if they're aluminum cones on the tip of a rocket where it's the point of entry. It's like the point of first entry. And oh, yeah. so nose cone got stuck in my head and then it just became nose cone. Um, Ouroboros is because the choreography is actually mimicking in the same way that I was saying it's a leapfrog. It's the Ouroboros is the snake eating its own tail. Mm. Um, so it's this movement where the back end is fueling the front end and it kind of goes in this kind of vicious circle and so that's what we were doing we weren't using all of the material for the wall because that would have taken up the entire sidewalk and Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be any room for any humans yeah um so we used a segment of the wall and we kind of recycled all the parts so it's like the Mm -hmm. back the tail portion of it became the front portion and then we kept on doing that effect and so whenever i was trying to explain that movement which was also hard to to do with the operations staff and art handling staff Mm -hmm. i i was referring I used the example or the diagram of an Ouroboros. Mm. Um, It's called G's because the segment that we had, that whole front segment is called, each of the um, segments has a different letter. So all of the front segments are G's and then at the corner there's E and F. So nose cone was E and F and then the performance was using G's. And um, yeah, definitely not something you would get from the press release or any of, (laughs) it was, yeah, only through... An interview like this. Well, no, that's why it's that's why it's fun to kind of ask these questions. There's all these little yeah. things that, and especially with your work, uh, as you said, it's so research heavy. And there's all these little, there's almost all these like little details, and it's it's yeah. great to kind of get access to those. It's kind of like each piece is an excavation, and you're just digging for all of these stories and details that already exist and bringing them to the surface. But that's most of the process for me. You know, I, I actually the the first 
work of yours that I saw was this uh, piece called Competition. Oh, yeah. Which I think was maybe three or four years ago now or something like that. Yeah, it was a while ago in the first piece I did with Bortolami. Yeah. Exciting. I, I loved that piece. And it was in a show that uh, Nicola Suonini was doing, um, a sort of yeah. ceramic show. And then there was also a text by... Uh, Jenny Jasky. Yeah, exactly. And it was sort of scattered all along the floor. So you were kind of standing on this ripped, kind of crumpled crumpled paper you know it, it was it, yeah it's kind of great atmosphere on the i mean so one of the reasons that we had all the papers on the floor was because it's really hard to turn and dance on it actually made it easier for the dancers to do some of the steps when they had something to spin on mm. um because there were a lot of turning sequences but just in brief the whole piece was designed so that each of the choreographies was a type of competition so there was a, a splits competition a um, endurance competition a breath holding competition, a balancing competition, a turning competition. I think there was one more, but it was really fun for us and really different from other performances because each, every time we would start one of the pieces, um, we wouldn't know the outcome and we wouldn't know who was going to win and who was going to lose and Mm -hmm. whoever won that. So they looked like choreographies, but if you actually saw them loop or you saw it happen more than once, you would see how it was actually a balancing competition or whether or not somewhat, you know, two people kind of working against each other, just like a race. Mm. And so the nuances or the the details in the structure would kind of slowly reveal the longer you stayed in the space. And there were all these rules. So like the person who lost the competition would then become the person who had to take the de-icing salt. I don't know if you noticed that part of it where there's yeah. this blue de-icing salt. And so, yeah, it'd be their job to delineate and draw the arena for the next piece. So Mm. whether or not that was a circle or a rectangle, so they would have to do that. And then whoever won got to choose which of the competitions they wanted to start in the next round. We came up with a movement, like a a sign language so that we could all communicate these things without speaking. And Mm. that was something that wasn't choreographed. It just happened over the course of rehearsals and kind of organically emerged. And it was interesting because we didn't really get as tired or exhausted as we would normally if we were just performing something for three or four hours because when you have like an incentive or a goal or you know like how long something lasts and there's like competition it actually really changes how your adrenaline works yeah so there are these bursts of adrenaline that kind of kept us going and it was very playful and really hard but Mm -hmm. definitely playful we also had these times of rest where between competitions we'd go to the front of the gallery like where the desk was and we had yoga mats and water and like rollers and would just like hang out and chat and just kind of be off. But us being off instead of backstage, which it usually is, or like in a weird back room at a gallery or, you know, a green room, we were just doing that right in the middle, like so that everyone in Chelsea could see. Yeah. Which was very confusing for people who were like, didn't know if they could come up to us and talk or not. But, but what was cool about the pieces after hours of doing it, we would start, it kind of kicked up a, a salty dust storm so the whole room would start very clear and you could see all of nick's pieces and then over the course like as we would get tired the whole room kind of got foggy which was something that i never expected or didn't anticipate and it was a nice little detail i think Um, i was i think i was picking that blue salt out of my rug for like a month (laughs) oh no (laughs) that's horrible no I, i i i loved that piece and and i i remember um it's it's funny to put myself back in that space because you know I I know your work uh, you know at least a little bit in you know after that 
point. But uh, mm-hmm. at the time, you know, I, I didn't know anything about it. I, you know, it's my first, uh, it's my first point of contact. Well, that's really cool. I'm and so happy you saw that piece. <laughs> no, it was, it was beautiful. And I, I remember I actually, I, I was sitting in the gallery watching it and I had, um, I had my camera with me and I had a really tight lens, like a, you know, I think it was like a 160 uh-huh. millimeter lens. And so there was this one motion. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe it was the balancing portion of, of the competition, but mm-hmm. sort of the sequence where two dancers would kind of walk up to each other, size each other up, and they would sort of intertwine their hands and almost like lean into each other's hands, you know, and, and almost rotate in that kind of uh-huh. like rotate around around that tension. I don't know if that's yeah. if that's coming to bringing to mind any particular, you know, part of the sequence. But yeah, I mean, I think that was probably a balancing sequence where one dancer would go into a, a difficult pose, like an arabesque or a passe or something and be on like a tiptoe. And then yeah. the other dancer would hold them exactly. and balance them. And then the rule was the supporting dancer would have to get them in a point where they could balance and then let go and run one circle around them. And exactly. then if that worked and they didn't fall, then the next time they had to do two circles around them. And mm-hmm. then the third time three. And so whether or not you could get to five circles or six circles, it was like this really bizarre game of musical chairs or something. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's exactly but really, what it was. You know, it was very humorous mm-hmm. as well because the dancer would try, it, it became for all of the competitions, there was this sense that they're working together, but they're also competing against each other. And mm-hmm. I wanted that to really flicker from the viewer's perspective of whether or not, you know, they're it's a pas de deux or whether or not they're competing against each other and having that actually go back and forth throughout each of the pieces. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I suppose it, it must've been during that sequence. That's exactly what it was. You know, I have all these really tight photographs of just the dancer's hands like intertwined. You know, they're, oh my gosh, I would love to see those. Yeah, I'll I'll send them to you. You know, they're not anything special, but they're no, they're but interesting. Just details or moments. Yeah. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Madeline Hollander for coming on the show. And the great thing is that Madeline is super good about the documentation of her work. So if you'd like to see some films she's made of past performances, you can do so at madelinehollander.com. Our show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack Neliza. I think we're going to be off next week. Uh, We're doing a little bit of work behind the scenes, but we will be back the week after that with another conversation. So hope everyone's doing well, and I will talk to you then. Bye-bye.